You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Is it already time for another episode of Digital Noise? Yay! <laughs> and joining me this time, of course, is Aaron. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for giving me possibly the best set of movies I've had. Really? This was the best set? Yeah. I thought the last time was the best set. You know, we'll just say they're always the best set. You I just, I just saw the because Joe was like, I think this is the worst set of movies I, you've given I, I saw you post that and just kind of silently went, oh, thank God. You get, you're like, In <laughs> fact, your stack was originally supposed to go to him, but we couldn't find a time to meet up that we both had the same time off and you were right there. And I was like, you know what? Just go ahead and take this. You know, I, just, we won't even have another chance for several days and we need to get these started. So really... You just by accident. Lucked I'm going to go ahead and say, it. Joe, thank you for having a busy schedule. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we talk about Blu-rays and DVDs, and we're going to start it off with a movie that is not one of the ones I think you were referring to when you said this is one of the best. Uh, no, not particularly for a while, but it's definitely one of the widest release films on our list, and that is the sequel to Bad Moms: A Bad Mom's Christmas. Now, full disclosure, and I know this, I'm speaking for both of us here because we had this discussion. Bad Moms wasn't bad at all. I, I thoroughly enjoyed Bad Moms, both in the idea that it had of moms need to break from convention of what they feel they have to do and yeah. be like, no, you can be a good mom and not be a perfect mom. I love that idea. Yeah. I think it expresses it well. It's got some genuinely funny setups. Every All the three primaries in the film, Mila Kunis, Kristen Bell, and Katherine Hahn, get their moments to be really funny in yeah. the film. They have great chemistry together. I was honestly shocked that so many people were hating on it. And you know what I discovered? About 95% of the people I saw writing things against it just didn't bother to go see it. We're, we're hating on it because it was the du jour thing to hate on. Well, and, in and of uh, itself kind of speaks volumes, I think. It's also a it's one of the new spat of female-led comedies. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, as a white guy, my people aren't necessarily the most friendly when it comes to that kind of thing. They're by default being unsupportive. Yes. Yeah. And it's kind of like, guys, why don't you just give these movies the same chance you would any other thing? If oh. this was like like a team up between uh, Bad Dads with Jason Bateman and Will Ferrell and, I don't know, uh, oh, and Will so, Forte, you would, uh, you would not immediately go, well, that's going to be shit. Yeah. Well, and it was interesting. When the trailer came out for this, I... It may have been the most excited I've been for a general comedy in a long time because I love the idea of them taking this vulgar R-rated ladies comedy and making a vulgar R-rated ladies Christmas movie comedy. Right. Like, I, I, that's such a brilliant idea. But all that being said, like, I'm bored of the vulgar R-rated ensemble comedy. I mean, I have been since The Hangover. Like, the moment it was over, I was like, that's enough. <laughs> okay, that was fun. That's fine, but don't do any more for a while. Which of course didn't stop them because we've had a slip. Which, not even just well, two hangover sequels that were terrible. And I'm like, okay. And I mean, I'm the guy who still says Bridemaids wasn't good. It was just a bad R-rated vulgar comedy transposed with with females instead of males, and there's nothing original in it. Right there with you. But Bad Moms actually found something to do with it that actually felt like it had something to say yeah. and was like never so vulgar as to make me go, come on. You know, like, I don't want to see somebody get, like, a face full of cum, you know? Like, <sighs> regardless. Outside of, you know, those five minutes I had a piece I watched certain movies. <laughs> but, um, 
Bad Mom's Christmas, unfortunately, despite being, yes, the, the right idea, because when you're dealing with moms, shouldn't have to work as hard as they do. There's certain things that they culturally feel like that they're ingrained that they have to do no matter if they want to do it or not. Christmas is one of those big times. God knows my mom worked so fucking hard every Christmas, like like four days of nonstop work prepping for Christmas, pretty much, and not even the buying of wrapping a present. Yeah, no, no, the, it's just cooking. Yeah, exactly. Just cooking. So it seemed like the appropriate thing to take this. The problem is, it's just not funny. No, and so, all right, now that we're jumping into issues, I have quite a few. Okay. Um, the biggest one, and this is the one that probably most people won't be bugged with as much, is I feel like the characters didn't learn their lesson from the first movie. Mm-hmm. Because what I liked about the first movie being that they ended up kind of finding a way to be themselves and being okay with that. And when we began Bad Moms 2... Almost every single character is in the exact same point they were in in the beginning of the first With one. With the exception of Mila Kunis, who has left her, her husband and, and not feeling bad about it anymore, and is with is full on with her new guy. Correct. It's actually the Kristen Bell character was the one that bugged me because that was so very much she was the overworked mom in the first one. Yeah, and, she's- and th- in the end, her husband was helping her. She was going to go get a job, and it was going to be all these things. Nope, back to the same character. Right. And I, I mean, it felt like, okay, so first off, if you've seen the trailers or saw Daddy's Home 2, you realize that on some level, these movies are, are, are capturing the same ground. It's like, let's yeah. redo the formula, except now we'll introduce their parents as various lovable uh, actors <sighs> and make that dynamic expand the dynamic. Here, they get the their moms come in with Christine Baranski, who is Mila Kunis's mom, who is a very... Like I mean, she's playing the, the role Christine Baranski always plays. She's yeah. a very high society, very snooty, very disapproving type mom. You have Cheryl Hines, who is playing uh, the mom to Kristen Bell, who is one of those incredibly needy, super who, attached. I'm we're best friends. We wear the same outfits and have the same haircut type mom. She was actually my favorite mom. Okay, out of the three of them. Now, I mean. Sorry, continue on. Okay. Uh, finish then, on the moms, and then I'll, I'll go into it because this was my big issue. Really. And then Susan Sarandon playing Catherine Hahn's mom was who was the mom who never wanted to stop being. Doesn't even think of herself as a mom. She was a uh, you know, I went out on the road touring with rock bands after you were yeah. born, and I just have partied my whole life, and I see you maybe once every few years, and usually it's when I need money. Literally, didn't even know it was Christmas when she showed up. Yeah. So um, I mean, like uh, each mom that seems to fit the characters. In an appropriate way. You know? well, and so I have to say, like, this movie, more so than the others, I think had an excuse to bring the moms in. That, again, very much like with making this a Christmas movie, is a good idea. Sure. The problem I had, though, is that the moms were such cartoon characters. Oh, sure. That it, it took it too far for me to be okay with. Like, and at the same time, I feel like the movie kept preaching one thing, but then what would happen in the movie would be the complete opposite lesson they're trying to teach the audience. Mm-hmm. So, like, clearly this is about the kids trying to assert themselves and learn how to be moms, but there's a great therapy scene with Kristen Bell and her mom, where two-thirds of it are a wonderful setup. The therapist is sitting there going, oh my god, your mom is crazy. Yeah. Your mom goes through all kinds of crazy shit and stuff that just like, lies about having a couple of diseases. Yeah. I mean, she's clearly got something seriously yeah. wrong with her. And then the moment that the mom walks out and Kristen Bell turns and says, what do I do? The therapist goes, 
oh, well, yeah, it's all your fault. You just need to deal with it and be nice to it. I her. know, which made no sense. That was Wanda Sykes, where she turns on the Wanda Sykes and yeah. goes like, bitch, that mom, she and, carried you in her belly and she played the girl with you. How dare you judge her anyway? It's like, okay, you were just here, right? Yeah, like it ruined the scene because yeah. like that was a great point that they could have actually driven home that lesson. Or there's a scene where one of them kicks their mother out. Yeah. And the situation that creates that is... It is justified. Oh, my God. I would have walked in and said, get the hell out the moment that happened. Sure. But then the that that mom's family proceeds to berate her and make her the bad guy about that. It just – it drove me crazy. It, yeah, and it's never addressed that – you know, like, it's the kids – who the the grandmother in question is constantly giving them expensive gifts through the whole, <sighs> like really expensive gifts. I mean, she's just buying their affections and that's it. In no other way is she affectionate, you know? And you're like, I, you can't get to this point where the kids are like, mom, how could you without going, you little greedy fucking yeah. self-serving pieces of shit. Well, <laughs> and and the, the, the last thing that really bugged me is so, in the first movie, they had a couple of different scenes where they were being quote unquote bad moms. There's really one scene in this movie where they're being bad moms, and basically they get shit faced at a mall and trash it. And that and, is one of the funnier scenes in but, the movie. But the problem even then is they're not really being bad moms. They just they're kind of assholes. They steal a bunch of stuff sure. and wreck a couple of stores. You're like that point where you're like, it's not really you're not really being a sympathetic character by no. by torturing these people who have nothing to do with your problems. Yeah, They're just trying to to go about their lives, doing their shitty minimum wage jobs at this moment. Boy, I do sound like an old person. Don't yeah, oh, oh dude, um, I felt like such an old fogey watching this. You know, I will say, and I know we disagree on this, I actually, despite the fact, once again, she's playing the same role she always did, I thought Christine Bransky had some genuinely funny well, moments in this thing. Um, I, all three of the moms had some nice moments. I mean, there are some nice moments. I kind of, there's a thing with uh, Peter Gallagher who plays um, Christine Bransky's not that bright, at least that's what she thinks, she acts towards him, but very, the soft-spoken sort of not really, I wouldn't even call him henpecked, he just doesn't react to all the craziness from the oh. mom, who has this, there's a scene that has the opportunity to be so much better than it is where he kind of explains to his daughter what's the deal with the mom and it's like this should be so much of a better scene but it's written in such a let's just get this over with sort of way well, and, and I want to clarify so like I, it's not that I dislike Christine Bransky or any of the mom's performances you're a Christine Bransky <laughs> like you're right, she's playing the exact same character she always plays but I tend to like that character Like, and, and I'm going to Shame, shame myself here. I kind of watch Big Bang Theory, and uh -huh. I, she's basically playing a more extreme version of her Big Bang Theory character, and I like her on that show. Mm -hmm. And so, like, she does a good job. It's just that they're so outlandish that I can't like the characters. And every time there's a human moment, uh, they're so far in between that it doesn't work. Like, there's another scene where the moms get to the mom's moms, <laughs> the grandmoms get together and have this moment where they all kind of realize they're shitty moms. And it's, it's the scene, you know, is going to happen from the moment we saw the trailer. And like, there's some really interesting dialogue there. It was really heartfelt, but it just wasn't enough. And I kept wanting the movie to be that I wanted it to be about the scenes with the dad, where they reconnect over what the mom is really like, instead of it being, an outlandish, R-rated, vulgar comedy. 
Yeah. You know? I, I, I agree. It felt like it's, it's heart was a second thought, and it should have been a little bit more to it. Yeah, it should have been heart and then add the vulgar for flavor yeah. instead of and most vulgar of, with even heart. The, even the vulgar felt like an afterthought, although Catherine Hahn is always, when she gets a chance to go full Catherine <laughs> Hahn, she's really funny. Um, I will did come with one important takeaway from this film. Where the fuck can I go to one of these places that's made of trampolines? No shit. They go to this, like, sort of, like, place for the whole family where it's, like, you know, whole giant areas with just nothing but trampolines where there's springboards that you can jump really high and land in, like, foam pits. Uh, best all, giant, bouncy dodgeball court. And this is a place you go and you get tickets like a family entertainment center. I'm like, where is this? I would totally get a giant group of people there and spend all day in that place. So that looks they, amazing. They actually do exist. There's one in Austin. Is there? It's one of those things where when you have kids and they get to be about 8 to 15, yeah. that's when you start to discover those places. Okay, see, because I'm kind of like, fuck the kids. Is there, <laughs> is there an adults-only night that we can go there? They might have a lock-in. We can take a bunch of whiskey and get shit-faced. That's what I'm saying. This looks like the <laughs> ultimate. I'm so ready for I just want to play dodgeball with all my friends in a giant bouncy room. <laughs> that sounds like like pretty much what I walk into <laughs> when I die and St. Peter opens the gates and it's like, there you go, there's your bouncy dodgeball room. There's wide screens in the background playing, you know, whatever movie I feel like seeing at that point. But anyway, uh, this is indeed out on Blu-ray and DVD. There's a gag reel, which wasn't terribly funny, I thought, uh, six and a half minutes. Um, there's some about four-minute lino-rama which, uh, of, de- of additional scenes, which is basically... Basically just, you know, with these type of movies, they let them improv certain sequences, and this is the other ones uh, they didn't use. As yes. it were. Sometimes that stuff is really great. Sometimes it's like, eh. Um, there's a music video with various members of the crew, which you see the bulk of at the uh, during the end credits, which I always hate that. Don't stop making movies that have the whole cast and crew singing and dancing oh. to a, uh, a a famous song or just a different version. Yeah, it, 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 I don't know. I don't want to say that because I love the 40-year-old virgin version yeah, of it. Yeah, but that was the one who did it first, but right? But you do have to be special about it. You can't yeah. just have them singing and dancing. You find some new take on it, and it's just become a cliche. We're like all the Shrek movies end yeah, that way. You know? very or, true. In fact, in general, any mid-level animation house theatrical release film ends that way, I should say. It's like, okay, stop it already. We get it. We're done. All right, so uh, moving on. You didn't get to watch this, but I do, once again, want to really emphasize how great the show Broad City is. And this is now up to season four. I find the show to be just incredibly amusing. It's Lana Glazer and Abby Jacobson, who play two best friends who are huge stoners and kind of losers, and they spend every day dealing with life in New York City. And it's a really crazy inventive half-hour comedy show that has has gotten to big success for both of them. We're already going on to bigger and better things. So it's interesting. Somebody I read an article once that compared uh, Broad City to Friends uh-huh. and how... Friends is a bunch of people who say they're friends but don't seem to really like each other that much. And Broad City feels like what it's like to actually watch a show about real friends. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, if, you're, if your buddies are hardcore stoners. But yeah, yeah. But it, it, and it's why I'm behind. I watched this at a friend's house because he DVRs it. And so I'm like two seasons behind. But it's a great show. It's truly phenomenal. And there's a bit, I don't know what season it is with a... Uh, the dildo and butt sex and uh, going to Shiva with a dildo in your purse yeah. that is like, uh, 
if you don't watch the show, at least YouTube it. It's like one of the funniest segments I've ever seen in anything. And it's one of those shows that every season, every episode is good, and like two of them are so great you can't believe it. Like, yeah. Just like, oh my god. The one for me this episode, is funny, every review I've read has of this season has different favorite and least favorite episodes. For me, my favorite was Mushrooms, where they take psychedelic mushrooms, and about 80% of the episode is, is animated in a sort of yellow submarine style, but like just all filled with, like, stuff and Easter eggs from the history of Broad City during it. There's, like, shit happening that's all, like, in the just hidden in the background and going all around them that are references to previous events and things. And it's just super fucking funny and cool uh, as they get sent to uh, uh, Abby's boss's house when Wanda Sykes, you know, after they take mushrooms, like, hey, well, I'm having a party. Can you grab a bunch of macaroons? They're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, and so they have to go and navigate to the store and buy them and then navigate to the party and then deal with a party with a bunch of people who they don't know. <laughs> Which I'll admit from my youth back in the day, I've had an experience, someone like that, where yeah. you're in a party, you're with a lot of people and you're tripping balls and have to act normal. And that is terrifying. <laughs> and Abby gets in a situation. Abby is very, is, is polyamorous. She's very sort of like, I forget what the term is where you're like, uh, I mean, she's bisexual, but she's also like, kind of like, I mean, more than that, like she'll be with trans people. She was whatever. Uh, pansexual. Pansexual. And, um, she meets a beautiful couple at the party and they go off to have a three way and she cannot function. She's just tripping balls and it's like, no, they're so pretty. I want to have sex with them so bad and I can't. Well, and really which, funny. That in of itself is good. What I like is this is yet another show we're starting to see more and more now where it doesn't make drug use evil. It makes characters who have alternative sexuality, who are gay, bi, polyamorous, like any of that's just, that's okay. Yeah, it's just and normal. I love that. Um, also, this shows finally the origin of how they met. Uh, going back to 2011, that's done as sort of a parody of the movie Sliding Doors, where it's like w- two different versions of the story. What would have happened if they had gone off and just immediately become friends? And what happens in the world where they didn't? And it's really quite funny. But yeah, once again, this is like a kind of essential watching comedy for me every new season. It's 10 episodes. It's great all the way through. Highly recommend it. And if you want, if you don't have access to Comedy Central or someplace else that streams this, you can buy the DVD set now of it. And uh, it's, um, yeah, it really is one of my favorite comedies. And I know, I know, I'm very picky about comedies. But this does, for sort of stoner comedy, something different than I've ever seen anybody do before. It brings a sort of a humanity to it that's not normally there in stoner comedy. I, I agree. It's, it's fully realized characters going through honest to God life's issues and just really high. And there's deleted scenes, extended <coughs> scenes, outtakes. Uh, there's a brief behind it, you know, the making of. And then there is uh, a series of webisodes that they made as well that attach to the season called Hack Into Broad City that are also very oh, fun. Oh, shit. Uh, so I, I'm way behind on Broad City, but I am up to date on the Hack Into Broad Cities. Okay. I watch those on YouTube as soon as I can. They're really funny. But like, regularly, I'll get into a deep dive and we'll spend like an hour just watching one after the other after the other. That's funny. Yeah, they're well worth You can watch those. Yeah, any uh, just going on YouTube. And that maybe give you a good flavor for what Broad City is. If you're, yeah. You know, because little brief webisodes. Uh, also, on television, they finally put out the complete set. Of Duckman. And I know most of you guys are like, I have no clue what that was because it was on the air from 1994 through 1997 and it was an animated car- meta cartoon for grownups. Which it was made by the guy who did The Critic, right? Uh, I Do believe I remember that? so. Everett Peck is the creator who did Squirrel Boy? 
I'm completely wrong. I have no idea. Oh no, he uh, he wrote for the critic. Okay, yeah, that's and for what it was. Rugrats as well, but he was not the creator of. <coughs> Duckman um, came from a characters that he created in a Dark Horse comic originally, um, and this came out on uh, when there was back when there was Paramount Network Television. Another reason some of you guys may not have seen it. Well, but um, it's about Jason Alexander's character of Duckman, who is a kind of sex crazed, widowed. Uh, misanthrope who is a uh, private eye and he lives with his family his his twin sons who are two heads on one body who are kind of geniuses but also a little obnoxious his really stupid son who's like like sweet but dumb as a, a bag of bricks and his wife's twin sister who despises him which obviously makes life kind of yeah. awkward and it's just you know I mean this is it's <laughs> It never goes so far as to be outright offensive. Some stuff in the show, upon rewatching it, it's like, okay, some of the sex stuff is pushing it a little, but to be fair, he, he's lascivious, but everyone calls him on it. He's never treated as the hero here. He is, he's not a good guy, and he's not going out and raping people. He's just constantly <laughs> looking at, like his eyes are bugging out when he sees a chick with just boobs, And everyone calls him on it, like that's inappropriate. You're a real piece of shit. So, I don't know if that's. Well, in, I, I suspect you would say that's not inappropriate. But the best character is Cornfed, his sidekick, who is a little pig who, who speaks in a very traditional sort of private dick sort of way, like a very sort of like like his, his guy Friday, um, <laughs> like who's a very who's the voice of reason who is often ignored here, but he's great. Um, his uh, uh, so eldest stupid son is played by Dweezil Zappa. Which is kind of funny. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's a lot here to really, really like. I've found that not every episode is magic of these, uh, I want to say four seasons, but when it hits, which is more often than not, it's laugh out loud funny. And this was doing what shows like Rick and Morty are doing now way back then in that sort of like really smart uh, stuff that's referencing really other really smart things and, and doing lots of meta humor inside of it. And if you're into any kind of uh, vulgar cartoons of the past, this was one of those cartoons that came out around the same time that The Simpsons and Married with Children were famous. And it was the, one of those, that holy trinity of shows that parents wouldn't let any of us watch because oh, yeah. we were all too young to watch at the time. Well, not me. So, yeah. <laughs> so it, it was one of those things, like, I watched half the show, but it was always late night rerun on sure. USA at, like, 2 a.m. Right. Uh, and yeah, this was for a while rerunning quite a bit. I think they were constantly in hopes they were going to bring it back again because everyone involved was like, this was a great show. This was really good stuff. And it just never really got the legs it deserved. I think it was, I would argue it was a little bit ahead, ahead of its time in the type of humor it was doing. Fair enough. It would probably find a lot more success now if it was on one of those shows where they do show cartoons regularly and they do have mature content. But one of the best episodes on here is in the fourth season, which a lot of people think is the best season, um, which is a parody of Star Trek, which is very, very, very funny, with uh, his main nemesis, King Chicken, uh, basically playing Khan, you know, and it's it's good stuff. I will say that's rare as shit that you find the last season is the one that is widely regarded as the best. Yeah, it was weird. I looked at several, because I wasn't going to rewatch the whole thing, who's got time. But I went through several different lists of top 20 Duckman episodes, and on all of them, three quarters of them were season four episodes. Okay. I was like, wow, all right. But, um... 
Yeah, I, I do recommend this. Oh, it's also got, I love the, he has two Care Bear-like teddy bear office assistants who just regularly get ripped to shreds and just utterly destroyed. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Anyway, the set is, it's just, this is just, in fact, a re-release when they separately put these things out on DVD. Uh, so it's all those original things. And there's a decent amount of behind-the-scenes stuff and interviews with the cast and things like that. So it's a decent set, but once again, it is just a, it's know, a re-release. Compiling everything all together, which those DVDs are, I'm sure, almost impossible to find now separately. It came out so long ago. So it's kind of nice to have it all in one place. Also being released as a re-release of television. And this one, I'm just going to, I don't have much to say about because I just, I had no time to try and watch this. But I still hear people reference the show on a, on the reg. Uh, in fact, I was just reading uh, the book about the making of like Star Trek, just all the shows and everything. And a lot of people who've worked on Star Trek worked on this TV adaptation of War of the Worlds that ran from 1988 <laughs> to 1990, based on the H.G. Wells book. Um, I, it obviously didn't go on for very long here, but uh, that being said, it had a certain amount of like respect and popularity uh, for what it did, and uh, it's one of those, like apparently they knew ahead enough of time it was going to end, so they actually came, they gave the show a real ending. It That's comes good. to a conclusion. I'm like, okay. So this is one of those things where a lot of writers that I really have enjoyed their work on other shows got their start on War of the Worlds, and it makes me curious to go back and check it out. And now you can get the whole thing in one set. I was going to say, I honestly didn't even know it existed until you showed it to me on the list. Yeah. I, I, I always forget that it existed. Because, you know, like I said, it came and went so fast, but it was one of those, like, okay, well, people were... It was a thing that, that had people who came out of it to do even bigger and better things. Yeah, I was reading these books about Star Trek. I'm always shocked how often Brian Fuller comes into it. I was like, that's right. Brian Fuller's one of his first big gigs was Star Trek The Next Generation. And then he worked on several other Star Trek shows after that. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. In fact, that may have been his first gig. I, I don't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, yes, War of the Worlds, it's out there if you want to check it out. And if you do, and if you have things to say about it, I'd be curious to hear from you guys. All right, so moving on to new <coughs> release movies. Uh, we have this little film I've been hearing about, and I doubt everybody else has been hearing about it. It's just that this is falls under my interest. This is relevant to my in- interests, is Accident Man. And it's a terrible title. Yeah, but- my, when I posted on it on Facebook, my mom was like, oh, so... It's about a man who goes around saving my people by talking about the statistical averages of accidents, right? <laughs> that sounds like something a mom would think. Oh, that's useful. Yeah, she was like, should I watch it? I was like, no, no, this is this is not for you. Wait, is it C-3PO? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it is based on a comic book, and essentially this is an excuse for a bunch of like, like either very well known or not as well known, but still very like working constantly stuntmen in the industry to make a movie where they play all the lead roles in it. I yeah. mean, the lead character is played by the, probably the most, uh, one of the most high profile of any of these guys lately in the making action movie scene, which is Scott Adkins, who is fucking fantastic. Like he's one of those guys. Every time he's in a movie, you're like, it probably won't be a good movie, but every scene he's fighting will be amazing. And he is exactly the right choice. He's a really good, good looking guy. He's very charismatic. He's kind of got the just enough acting chops to pull it off. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's no, you know, he's no A-lister. That's for sure. No, no, no. He, 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 nobody in this movie are really great actors. No, but nobody <laughs> is so bad that you're embarrassed for them no. either. No, no. Uh, and he plays a guy who's an assassin who his, methodology is that he's the best there is at making it look like it was an accident. 
And he's part of a whole group of people who regularly hang out at this bar run by his mentor, the guy who made him into an assassin, Ray Stevenson, who's they've olded up for the role. You know, he's the bartender and the manager of this coalition of killers that all work there and report to a wormy uh, accountant type dude uh, played by David Pamer, whose name is Milton, which is the only <laughs> name he could have had. Which favorite detail is the rule at the bar is nobody beats up Milton. Yeah, it's one of it's the like, rules. It's written above the bar in chalk. Realize how tempting it is, but don't beat up Milton, even though he's super annoying. And there's a whole series of big personalities in here. I like that Michael Jai White and Ray Park, who are probably the two other biggest names in this thing, play a sort of like team, like a duo assassin team that their whole thing is they were black, special ops militaries and they're just great at like a uh, shock and awe, basically. I in no way realized that was Ray Park. Yeah. Oh. He's looking a little old. So I, uh, this movie was a big relief for me because traditionally I love big dumb action, mm-hmm. but I feel like every big dumb action movie you shown me on this show, I've come ac- I've come out of it going, "Fuck, man, I must be old because I just did not like this." Yeah, and this was the first one where I was like, "No, I mean." Yes, the actors aren't great yeah. in the acting. And yes, everybody hates everybody at every point. And yeah. you can tell the entire plot from the get-go, but oh, man, is the action awesome. But as such being, he essentially gets set up by someone, wants to find out who, and ends up in a scenario where he has to take on all the other assassins. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, I mean, it is what it is. The plot is very simplistic. There's no big surprises here whatsoever. What it does have is a series of, like, charismatic and kind of fun fun written roles for yeah. these people to play and some really inventive, well-shot action sequences oh, I, that, that are nonstop. All of the characters are interesting and unique. My personal favorite being the guy who doesn't fight anything. Yeah. Uh, but he just causes, like, really weird ways to kill people. Like, he'll kill you with a Band-Aid. Yeah. He, and that's his shtick, is to find weird new ways to kill people. Exactly. He's, like, the inventor of new ways to kill people. I, I will say, though, that there is, like, a 20-minute flashback that randomly happens in the middle of the movie. Yeah, it's a little, like... It's super out of place. It should have happened in the beginning. Yeah. It should have started the film that way. Yeah. And I spent the entire movie that, because the movie is the kind of movie that it is, going, please don't have sex with your dead girlfriend's lesbian lover. Please don't have <laughs> sex too. with your dead... I did, too. Like, that would have really ruined it. Yeah. It would have killed it. Yeah. You would have been like, okay, that's... Why are you trying to... And it's like you're intentionally trying to piss off uh, homosexuals by yeah, doing Yeah, exactly. So, but they didn't. They did not. Thank you. They never even addressed nope. the insinuation that that could happen. Yeah, although I will say the only thing that pulled me out of the movie was how much she hated him. Yeah. Which I get in other movies that would have made sense. But with the way that that uh, he, Ross from Friended, broke up with his ex-girlfriend and she got with her, like, I don't really feel like she had any justification for the anger, whereas... Yeah, it'd be more like he would be justified to hate you. Yeah, the because, other way like, around. and I don't feel like this is a spoiler because it's a relatively early part of the plot, but... It ends up that she was pregnant when they left, and yeah. that's the whole reason this happens. And you're like, you've child. got even more reason to be wildly pissed off yeah. at that point. 
Like, yeah, I know. That was a little irritating. But once again, this is not the kind of movie you're watching for the plot. You're no. watching this for the action, and it delivers on It that delivers plot. like nobody's business. Yeah, it's really fun. I mean, it's not the raid, mind you, but in an American action movie sort of way, this is one of the better ones I've seen oh, in a while. An American mid-grade action. Yeah, like, mid-grade. Make no mistake. Like, direct-to-DVD yeah, action. You, you can tell these are sets. Much and, better than anything I've seen from Jean-Claude Van Damme or Steven Seagal or any of that crowd in probably 20 years. Okay, yeah. I was going to say, hold on, I think I've seen Jean-Claude Van Damme movies better, but you're right, not in 20 years. Yeah, exactly. All right, so then next up, we have another sort of direct-to-DVD type movie, taking Ethan Hawke in the role of the uh, lead action star and being directed by, and this seems to be a thing that people are now going after the success of John Wick, going, maybe we should start doing this, of taking a longtime stuntman and giving him the reins of the film, Brian Smurz. Smurz? SMRZ. No oh my idea. god, there really isn't a vowel in that last yeah, name. I know. You're like, dude, where, what happened to your vowel? Did someone kick it out of there? What is the deal? But uh, 24 Hours to Live follows Ethan Hawke as a career assassin. Uh, he's like the the badass of badasses, even though he's seemingly at the beginning of this film retired. Uh, he's hanging out on a beach with his dad, played by Rucker Hauer, and they're just kind of sh- drinking and, and shooting the shit. And yeah. he gets a call that basically says, or gets met up with saying, look, we need you back for one last mission. We need you to come back. This is the type of job only you can do. We only trust you to do it. You've been asked for specifically by name. It pays more money than you've ever been paid for a single job. We've all heard this setup before. Yeah. Yeah. And you find out that one of the reasons he left in the first place is because his wife died. Uh, and he's like just at rock bottom. What I like about him leaving is that it becomes clear he didn't quit. He took like a sabbatical. Because yeah. when they come up, he's like, no, no, fuck you. I have another week. I'm on vacation. This is my vacation. Yeah. Leave me alone. I wasn't even supposed to be here today. <laughs> and oddly, he gets in there and uh, on the first leg of his voyage, uh, he has to seduce uh, his target, uh, played by uh, Zoo King Quing, I'm not, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not, who is another agent, which he does quite successfully, quite handily, and then gets um, killed by her. Yep. He fucks up and dies. And then the next thing you know, he's waking up on a table with a weird fucking timer on his arm and like a bunch of stitches. And they're like, look, here's the deal. We have this technology. That's kind of what this whole mission was about. Um, other people are trying to expose this technology. We don't want them to do that. But we're using that technology on you that can bring anybody back to life up to a certain point of being totally destroyed. And, but only for like a day, for like 24 hours. And after that, they, they die again. But we're sending you out. The real mission, the question to me was kind of, you know, you're, you're going, what is the point of any of this for you to do anything? You're like, you have one day left. You're not really good. What are you going to accomplish here? And he ends up teaming up with the girl who assassinated him to try and investigate the people who just gave him his life back, even though they had nothing to do with him being killed other than he was on a mission, which he agreed to. I was like, why are you trying to expose them now? She's the one who killed you. Yeah, like, that's the thing. Like, I mean, they brought him back basically to answer a question. Yeah. And then the the movie does this weird thing where it, it feels cyclical, where the plot that he gets involved in happens because they're doing the things that... That he got involved in, and so... But one thing I did... I will say that I really liked about this movie is it feels like the mid-grade action movies of old. Yeah. Like, the Harley Davidson, the Marlboro Man. (laughs) Back when they (laughs) used to make, like, like not high-budget movies. These are just a couple million dollars with 
low A to high B level stars, and it was just like a fun little action film that would come out. No, I, just made with the modern kind of professional killer sensibilities I, of today. I agree with you. Um, more than not, I did have fun with this. Yeah. I and mean, this is hardly a masterpiece, but it's got solid action. Ethan Hawke is good at it. He's doing his best to be the weary, world-worn uh, assassin, which is certainly a trope we've seen a billion times. But as we said, it's one of those type yeah. of movies. And Liam Cunningham from Game of Thrones is playing the evil, rich, bad guy. And there's some huge action moments in this that are, wow, that was super cool. Ethan Hawke proves himself a capable physical performer, for sure. And and I got to be honest, I'm kind of intrigued to see what else this director would do. Because he did a decent job of shooting it. There were yeah. some really interesting scenes. The my My only real... Complaint, complaint about the movie that isn't just, well, it's a mid-grade action movie, is that there is a stinger ending that I think completely undoes the entire film. Yeah, I'm kind of like, but wait, what? Yeah. It's just there to go like, aha, if yeah. we need to, we can make another one. It's just like all of the shitty horror movies that came out where it all of a sudden ends with some jump scare, but it's the action movie equivalent of that. Yeah, and I'm like, crazy. There's so many great horror movies that like still insist on doing that stinger. That's just something I'm yeah. at the camera. And I'm like, why? There was and, no need for that. In all of them. I'm like, you know what? Just cut the last three seconds of the movie out and you have a really good movie. Yeah, maybe. I, okay, I don't a know. Fun movie, I mean, I it didn't say. offend me as much. I'm kind of like, I would watch the next movie to see an explanation for what just happened. You eh, know? Fair enough. I'm like, okay, if there's a good explanation, I'm fine, because that could be the lead into a whole other crazy fucking plot. Because I think this is the type of movie the crazier the plot got for a sequel, the better. You know what? It, I, I will take that back. You're right. If they actually made a sequel to this movie, like with the same director and yeah. with Ethan Hawke, and continued the plot, I'd be like, you know what? I'm in. Let's and do it. Give it a crank element where yeah. he's got it. Dude. This time he has more than twenty four hours to live, but he's got to constantly snort, snort cocaine the entire yep. time. <laughs> Still sad. There's been no crank three. I'm oh, like, me on, too. Man. Bring it back. Me too. Uh, I was going to point out as well. There is one thing as towards the end that threw, threw me off because I'm like, uh, like out of nowhere, Rucker Howard's a badass, and I was like, what? Oh. <laughs> so I will say the one thing I was okay with that is he wasn't a total badass. Right. He basically just got the jump on two guys. Yeah. It wasn't like he walked into a room and but took out a dozen like, people. But he's very like he is nonchalant. About about shit. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, I just killed like four people. No big deal. No big deal. It's, it's Tuesday. <laughs> I don't know. I think this is worth watching. It's it's not great, but it's good, and it's got more than enough entertaining stuff in it. And a director who I think also has a good sense of style. Yeah, I, I would say it's totally worth renting or checking out. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, finally being re-released on Blu-ray. This not a masterpiece film, but that yet has entered into the canon of, like, the film that people think of that is brought to their lips when they think ridiculously bad horror movie. Now, this, of course, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, coming out in 1978, was an intentionally bad horror movie with, you know, a comedy I'm watching this and I'm going, wow, this is such a ripoff of Airplane, <laughs> only to realize, oh, actually, it was the other way around. This oh. came out first, and afterwards, Airplane 
came out and even people wrote Airplane like, yeah, we were kind of influenced by watching Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. It's like, well, holy it's, shit. It's weird. Like, this movie felt a lot like, and it's one we covered on this show, and I can never remember the title. It's Woody Allen's second film. where he's oh, this take da- Donnie and run. Yeah. It feels so much like that yeah. where there's not really a plot. There's just a series of skits. Yeah. And sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're yeah, not. It's one of those movies from that time that the, of which there were many. There was, uh, uh, like I said, the Airplane Films, Young Doctors in Love, um, uh, uh, a Kentucky Fried Movie. Yeah. Uh, that one that's got the on the cover has the gorilla with a television head. Uh, oh, shit. Like John Candy and a bunch of people like that. And I forget the name of it. Um, but this one is like specifically making fun of like, you know, 50s and 60s bad horror movies. And it's laughing at it. It's not just laughing at itself. It's flat out. There's no way to mistake this for anything but a straight up satire. And it's done on a zero budget. Yeah. Like, the, the tomatoes are actual tomatoes actual that tomatoes. they just roll at people and play a sound exactly. And this is one of those movies. I like, you're not supposed to watch this by yourself at home. You're not. You watch this in a big crowd of extremely drunk people. I did invite a couple of friends over, and we got a little shit face. It well, was that delightful. is the way to to watch it. Um, and it's still, even then, not a very good movie. But it does. It's one of those movies people keep coming back to. Hell, the sequel was George Clooney's first film. Like I gotta say, like I was watching this, and I spent the entire time going, you know, there's an audience out there. It's just not me. Sure. There, there's. I will say that there's a chase sequence at the end that was actually laugh out loud funny. Like the last 10 minutes of this movie had me laughing really hard. Right. And then, uh, I'm, I'm going to potentially jump the gun on what you were going to say, but there is a crash that happens at the beginning. Just you yeah. pull up a and there's crash. chaos and a helicopter crashes. Like kind of spectacular. Yes. Yeah, spectacularly. So you mentioned that I went back and watched it after you had said that it's, it ended up, it was really a real crash that happened. Yeah. They, they were just, just filming, filming it <laughs> and they went down and I rewound it three times. You can see like a piece of helicopter miss one of the actors by maybe three inches. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily nobody was hurt other than a couple bumps and bruises. Yeah. Otherwise I'm sure they wouldn't have been allowed to keep it in there. But it's funny because I'm watching this and I'm like, how in the fuck did they afford to crash it? Oh, and there's actually one of the many bonus features on the set is look is people talking about it even like where it was one of those things it was a big deal like like one of the main actors was on Johnny Carson that's the first thing Carson asked was about the helicopter Dude. crash it was a news story I, and this movie mysteriously was a news story like people were talking about this and this was playing theaters all over the country I gotta say it's worth even if you don't like this kind of movie it's almost worth watching it just to watch that uh, helicopter crash and see yeah. the way it plays out and if you're into those really weird kind of I don't want to say mockumentary, but that that oddly paced uh, parody film that existed around in there, man, this is right up your alley. I It'd agree. Be great. Um, there's a lot of bonus features on here, as I said. There's Legacy of Ele- uh, Well, first off, let me say, almost all of these bonus features are also done very tongue-in-cheek as comedy pieces that don't really work, much like the movie itself. They're not funny, <laughs> really, unless you think... If you think this movie's hysterical, you'll like these as well, but there's... It's an enormous amount of dedication that they came back and did all these, this goofy. There's Legacy of a Legend, 14 Minutes with, uh, is a retrospective with interviews with the cast and crew and some fans, including the famous Academy Award writer Bruce Valanche. 
uh, who of course he likes this movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, three and a half minute crash and burn, which looks at the helicopter crash. There were uh, two super duper eight prequels. It was basically the first draft short Attack of the Killer Tomatoes uh, with an optional commentary track, and then Gone with a Babusu Land, which is a totally unrelated short. Uh, and there's Famous Foul, which looks at this, the, the mascot of, I don't even know what team, some team in San Diego, the San Diego chicken. I know nothing about sports, sorry. Uh, but Go he's, sports ball. he's in the movie and they have a jokey thing with him being, yeah, that was my first big film. Uh, six minutes of deleted scenes, four and a half minutes killer tomato mania, which is a guy dressed up in a killer tomato suit outside man's, ch- uh, a Chinese theater being goofy. Um, uh, we told you so, which is uh, just a dumb fake conspiracy about the making of the film. Uh, there's a bunch of sing-alongs. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention this is a musical. There's huge, yeah. big musical numbers during this song. Well, not huge, but musical numbers during which this. Which I kind of wish you hadn't mentioned it because it just smacked me across the face and surprised the hell out of me when they started breaking into song. I'm trying to remember what it, who it is. The guy who sings. Puberty Love, which is one of the big songs in the oh, movie. Oh, he's um, he was in Soundgarden, right? Yeah, I think he's the drummer. Yeah, the drummer for Soundgarden. I was like, wow, that's crazy. Um, and I and will say, in that note, as far as the music, it has possibly one of the most memorable theme songs ever. It, it like, does. I just saw the movie this past week, and I have known the theme song my entire life, and yeah. have been humming it for the past two weeks since you told me I was going to be watching this. I saw this probably 15, 20 years ago at some point, and the only thing I really remembered was the, the theme, theme song. song. Yeah. Um, uh, there is Slated for Success, which is two minutes looking at the how this guy, the, the chick who did the slate Clapping went on to, well, nothing afterwards, even though they insinuate she owns the company now. Maybe she does. I don't know. Um, there's trailers, radio spots, and audio commentary. I mean, there's a poster, a like, small poster that's folded up into uh, the uh, uh, keep case. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's rumors there's some Easter eggs in this thing, but I don't know. I, I feel like if if you're the kind of person who likes this movie you already are going to be buying this on Blu-ray. Yeah, I mean, it is the best edition that exists of this film with the most amount of extra stuff. If you love this movie, and I certainly know people who do, and I, I wouldn't judge them for it, whatever, you know, especially if you love it for nostalgic reasons. Yeah. You know, like, there's movies I love that if I I know if I had seen for the first time now, I'd be like, this is shit. But because my memories tie back into how hysterical it was to me back when I was like eight years old, I still love it. I was going to say, yeah, if I had seen this when I was like a preteen or younger, I'd love the hell out of it. Well, let's go on to Arrow's re-release of The Cat O Nine Tales. Now, this is one I was very excited to get my hands on because this is one of the few of the Dario Argento films that I had never gotten a chance to see, partially because it was completely out of print for a very long time, even though this was very well received when it originally came out. It is not considered one of Argento's lesser films. It was actually considered one of his better films. And it was the second movie he made, he put out after the, the Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which when it came out was sort of like, he was treated like a golden boy. It was one of those, this guy had worked on Sergio Leone pictures and Mario Bava pictures, and really had worked his way up in the industry and then his first film was a monster success and like uh, this was much anticipated is it as good as bird with the crystal plumage no it is not but it's most still, definitely not it's still a pretty damn good movie and it's very amusing to see carl malden <laughs> playing the lead character in the italian horror movie uh i was just i think of carl malden more in terms of seeing him drawn in mad magazine as a kid with a gigantic red nose 
than I would. Like, he was the W.C. Fields of my generation Although, in the way they drew him. I got to say, I spent half the movie thinking that the, the news reporter in the movie was Charlton Heston because <laughs> he looked so much like him. He did, kind of. Uh, yeah. This was the, the second movie in his Animal Trilogy, the third one being Four Flies of Grey Velvet. If you want to hear us talk about the other two, on the uh, second and most recent Deliberations of Doom episode, we actually go into those both of those early uh, Argento films. But this particular woman, uh, no, woman, uh, movie... <laughs> was very successful in Europe. In the United States, it really didn't get much of a release. The idea here, Carl Malden is a blind guy who uh, spends a weird amount of time with his young niece. I don't mean, like, creepy sexually. I'm just like, who spends that much time with their, like, preteen niece? Okay, it was a niece. Because I missed the part where they defined their relationship. I only got that he wasn't her father and was very confused about their relationship. Yeah, it was very strange. But uh, that being said, he meets a reporter named Carlo uh, who, like, basically he helps him out with a bit of information he overheard about a case. Um, And this is one of those where, yeah, it's like somebody who's not a cop investigating a case. In fact, they form Carl Malden and the reporters form a bond because Carl Malden used to be a reporter before he went blind. And his instincts are still there. And it's sort of like him and his girl, young girl detective (laughs) investigating what ends up being a, of course, series of elaborate uh, animal themed murders. And as always, it's the black glove killer. It's like I said, once again, animal themed stuff. Um, the hint that it's going to do something supernatural, but then it doesn't. Well, it, it, it feels a lot of our gentle movies feel this way where like, yes, there's a plot and this is actually back before he got experimental when his movies were far more coherent. And this isn't a gentle fan saying this, but, uh, coherence like, is not always like, good. it feels like. <laughs> It's less about what happens and more about just experiencing the way he shot it. I mean, uh, one good. of the one of the murders, a person gets killed by a train, and it is by far maybe the best train death ever shown on film. It's astonishingly gruesome. Yes, like, <laughs> it plays over the menu, and when uh, or either the menu or was in the trailer, and when I saw just a little clip of it, I was like, "Holy shit, I'm in." I can't wait to watch this because I had never seen this before. And you watch this in the killer, whoever they are, not going to tell you. Uh, it doesn't. It, it doesn't really matter because I was kind of like, who is that? It's, when they finally show, I was like, oh, they were in like one scene. Yeah, same here. <laughs> I was like, oh, it doesn't really matter who the killer it's is, not, I guess. This isn't one of those movies, but it because these two guys, they realize that they're closing in on the facts of the case, mainly because they have a photograph of the moment that person was fell into the tracks, which is presumed it was an accident, but they're like, you can see a hand pushing them in the photograph. But, uh, the, the killer starts stalking both of them and keeps unsuccessfully trying to kill them while still successfully killing plenty of other people yep. around them. And the kills are graphic and cool and nasty, just like you want from a Dario Argento film. And it's, he hasn't reached that, you know, like I said, it's not to me, he never he hadn't really reached that point of like being the guy who is the legend until Suspiria. But all three of these first three films are there's more than enough here to enjoy where he was doing stuff in Giallo that nobody had done yet, that he was ahead of his time, certainly. This is the stuff that everyone else copied afterwards. There's well, ten years of other Giallo by other directors and writers that all have animal names in the title that are just ripoffs of these three films. Like I said, it's, it's before he got surreal. It's before yeah. he got as stylistic as he was, but it's still shot amazingly. It's a gorgeous film, and it's just a fun little thriller. 
Yeah, it's well worth your time. It's yeah. not boring, especially if you like Argento and you've always been like, well, I'll think about watching this one. You should. It's It, it really is good. I think uh, of the three animal ones, <laughs> this is the second best. Four Flies, I'm still like, eh, it's I, got I, a lot of problems with I it. I have it. I still haven't seen it. It's it's and- not great. Uh, but um, the, there's uh, some supplements on here, uh, which are exactly the same as when Anchor Bay released <laughs> this movie on Blu-ray a few years back, which are Tales of the Cat feature out with interviews with Argento. Morconi, who did the soundtrack for this, and co-writer Dardano Sacchetti, radio interviews with uh, uh, Maiden and uh, Francicus, radio and TV spots, and and international and U.S. trailers. So it's not a huge Arrow release, but still a decent one. Yeah, yeah, um, worthwhile. Check it out, especially if you like Dario Argento or fun thrillers. So one film I got to see you couldn't see because they would only send me the one digital link copy of it, which is one time use, is the Tagalong Two. Now. The Tagalong, you're like, well, what the fuck is the Tagalong? Are you talking Tagalong too? It's a Taiwanese horror film directed by Cheng Wai Ho that was kind of a big deal when it came out in 2015. A lot of people were talking about it. It was one of those I kept hearing about it in horror communities and going, when do I get a chance to see this? Well, they actually, because they realized this when they sent the link, I was like, hey, um, any chance you guys have a link to the Tagalong? Like, yeah, here you go. Everybody's been asking. Because <laughs> they were, like, offering me the second one. And then we're like, I have, like, I have no idea what this is about. It's adapted from, in Taiwan, a well-known urban legend, the little girl in red, right? Which is this little girl in red that shows up and leads people off to the woods where they disappear. And it's kind of a has elements of, like, fairy lore type stuff, like the spirits of the woods Ooh. type things. And, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that feel like it ties into that sort of stuff. But then a lot of stuff that feels kind of the ring-ish as well. Um, and the, the first movie, which follows a uh, guy, uh, guy named Wei who lives with his grandmother, and she disappears totally without a... Re- with a just apropos of nothing. Um, but... Everything in the house that she normally does every morning is done. And he's like, what the fuck? Even his breakfast is is prepared. He starts looking for his grandmother. Uh, He finds a video that shows his grandmother being let off uh, into the woods with uh, his grandmother. And uh, and then ends up tying into uh, his girlfriend, Yi Chun, who discovers, basically is the one who's a DJ who realizes that everything is tying into this urban legend. And again, this is a lot more of a sort of exactly what you'd expect, more the ringish in many ways type of thing. And it was all right. It, it kind of like, okay, it's one of those, okay, and let's wrap it all up at the end with a bow. Everybody's okay. And uh, we, we figured it out, folks. We looked into the background. <laughs> we know what's happening now. Well, the interesting thing about the tag along too is that it kind of subverts a lot of the stuff, what happened in the first one. And it feels like it's just one of those, like, okay, now it's a whole totally different group of people. It's uh, We're not even going to reference the events of the first movie. But that's kind of a misdirect, because there's a point in the movie where suddenly they the characters find this feral woman hiding in a place that seems to be a place that the little girl in red has been leading people. And it's the girlfriend from the first movie who was all okay and fine at the end of it. And she's like kind of gone insane and is hiding in this place. But here it follows a social worker who is dealing with multiple moms. She's a mom and she has a teenage daughter. She discovers that her, uh, teenage daughter has gotten pregnant and there's this movie spends a lot of time discussing whether abortion is okay or not in a subtextual sort of way and how that relates to the little girl in red. And then you have somebody she was doing social work with this mom who 
whose daughter she's keeping locked in a room with lots of mystical symbols and painting her all over with mystical symbols. He's like, oh, I'm protecting her from the little girl in red. All right. So they end up, uh, basically the teenage girl who's pregnant goes missing, let off by the little girl in red, uh, near an abandoned hospital where they find the other girl. Uh, they go to rescue her and everything gets really wacky. It does find a way, like it kind of abandons the whole fairies, spirits of the wood thing almost all but completely, but it finds uh-huh. a way to take it in a new direction where it's not just a repeat of it. It gets a little goofy, dumb CG heavy at points where you're like, okay, there's a big like confrontational sequence in the last act where you're like, this all looks fucking terrible because of the CG. But, you know, Taiwanese doesn't have a huge horror industry and this is probably as good as it gets right now. Maybe if there's something better, please let me know. I'd love to watch it. It's okay. But, like, a lot of sort of, like, what was happening, I remember when Korea first started, really, their film industry going into genre stuff, everything they were putting out for a while was just a ripoff of either Dark Water or The Ring or Pulse. It was all that. And this feels like that. It's like, oh, it's a burgeoning new horror industry, and they're just ripping off J-horror. Or old J-horror, you know? I really hope they get as good as Korean cinema is then. Oh, man, Korean (laughs) cinema got to be, like, the best in the entire in any Dude, Asian country. Nobody does fucked up drama like Korea. Oh, no. I mean, God, guys, watch I Saw the Devil. Holy shit. Oh, yes. It's so good. Yeah, this is just okay. I mean, if you really are into the sort of ghost movies with uh, with a myth mythological type twists, then this might be your type of thing. It's better done than most of these, and there's a lot of them uh, out there, films that are similar, but it's okay. All right, so let's move on to a horror movie that is easier to get here, which is Victor Crowley. In my head, I keep going. In my head, I keep hearing, Victor Crowley, doom, 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 won't you kill all my friends? You don't know any Ozzy Osbourne, do you? No, no. Fair enough. He had a song called Mr. Crowley that was very big on the Blizzard of Oz album, which, by the way, is one of the greatest albums ever made. Okay. Victor Crowley is technically just Hatchet 4. Uh, they wanted to rebrand it. Victor Crowley was the name of the killer in the first three Hatchet, uh, uh, Hatchet movies, who is a uh, Kane Hodder wearing a giant mutated overall-wearing redneck suit who uh, kills anyone who comes to his swamp. And it's all been done in a sort of knowing, wink-wink comedy style, these films, uh, directed by Adam Green and pretty much starring all his friends. I mean, this feels like... Hey, we got a break between movies. Let's make another Hatchet movie. Is what all these films feel. You like. know, what? I'll give you that. So I, I, I do not like this movie, and I do not like the Hatchet films I've seen. Like I saw the first one, and I kind of vaguely remember seeing the second one and going, you know what? This isn't for me. These are and these are <clears throat> slasher indie horror comedies for people who obsessively watch indie horror. Yeah, and recognize all the sub-references and the appearances and like everybody in this has been in other horror movies or Scream Queens or like some of the characters are reoccurring characters from the other Hatchet movies. In fact, the basic plot here is the one survivor from the last movie um, uh, Andrew Young, played by Perry Shen, has, even though a lot of people believe he killed killed all those people himself from because the last two movies were one incident. You know, they they like okay. Yeah, Did not know that. The last two, they were like it just stops and starts with the next one. Um, <clears throat> he was the only survivor, 
And uh, he appears on his ex-wife's show, Sabrina, and she's immediately like, yeah, we know you did it. But he's promoting his new book, which is basically like, I, Survivor. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, yeah. And so he oh ends up God. being offered a lot of money to go and fly down to the swamp with people, which now has turned into a big tourist attraction, uh, where there's like, you know, little things you can push the button and hear audio and stuff on Victor Crowley's house. Um and he's like, okay, I guess it's safe and it's a lot of money, but he's down there with a bunch of people who are, of course, all assholes, like, cause they always are. And that's the point. Yeah, I mean, that's an intentional satire. There's point. one good character right. in the whole movie. And it, it, there's even a part towards the end where they're all going, no, look, let's face it, we're all terrible human yeah. beings. And he just chimes in. I, I haven't done anything bad. <laughs> he's just like, dumb. Like, I, I am a, I loved his character. Yeah, he's not he's not terrible, he's just dumb. Yeah. He's like he's got that the the, the goodness that comes from naivety. <laughs> um, oh, and- but yeah, it crashes their plane crashes in the swamp and of I thought a kind of funny gimmick of like the Victor Crowley definitely like as a human definitely died in the last one, but uh he was originally brought back to life for, as a child after he was killed as a child by a voodoo curse. And so, like, they basically just leave their phone on and lying on with, like, a, you know, on YouTube, after you do a video and it's done, it immediately goes to the next video they like, you might like, which happens to be a whole series of people reading out the voodoo curse and how they think it might be pronounced correctly until they hit on the right you one, know, I, which, I of course, admit, is Tony Todd. That was a great bit. Like, so, and, I, and so I know that I said I hated this movie, but, like, the thing is, is... This just isn't for me. Like, no, like a lot of it is really, it's, it's, not for everyone. it's humorous violence. Like there, there's an opening scene where he kills, uh, Jonah Ray from the Nerdist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had uh, to stop and pause it. I was like, is that Jonah Ray? Just, but, and, and his just the bright then made fiance after one of the most awkward scenes of humor I've ever witnessed. And then he chops them up into little bits and it's a funny scene. And like, I watch it going, Oh, I can acknowledge that this is supposed to be funny. It just didn't work for me. Sure. And, and then the, the only part that I can objectively say really bothered me was there's a scene later on where they, they kind of have this really cool, inclusive LGBTQ moment mm-hmm. where one of the characters in trying to turn off a guy goes, look, I have a dick. And later on, it comes back. He's like, look, I really don't care that you have a dick. I just I just really like you, and I want to be around you. And it's this really sweet moment that they immediately undo by everyone being super grossed out by the fact that she has a penis, which she doesn't. Really? I didn't but, get that from that. Yeah. Like, like when they're all giving – I don't know. Like, it seemed odd because it seemed like a somewhat transphobic scene immediately following this really inclusive scene. Hmm. So that's why I noticed it a lot okay. in that one sequence. But it, and, I, I and, didn't. I didn't even notice the the, the transphobic. Yeah, it, it, I could have just read that into it. I will say though that as much as I'm saying I don't like it. Holy shit, towards the end, some of the kills are amazing. Well, that's the main thing for the series is that it's. Uh, and this is the most comedy oriented of the four films. Like they all have it. This is the one that's most overtly comic of them all. Um, and, but the real reason I think people go to see these things is the gore is 
excessive and insane. Yes. This is the spiritual successor after all these years to where H.G. Lewis started it, where it's like, we are not going to pull away. You are going to watch every bit of the splatter and they are nasty, nasty kills. But they're funny usually because they're like, okay, that's crazy how that person died. There's one where a guy gets the top of his head cut off and the brain falls out and starts bouncing around the room. I was like, I laughed out loud at that. That was hilarious. It's the thing. This is like for very select crowd of horror fans, of people who already like slasher films, already like super gory films, who people watch a lot of horror and recognize all the many, many in-jokes inside these films. I mean, there is what it is. I'll tell you, I actually thought this was my favorite of the Hatchet films. Um, But I've never been the wildest, hugest fan of the Hatchet movies either. I respect them all. I'm like, this is a bunch of friends having fun and doing it in a way that's very watchable and entertaining in its way. But it's not really my thing, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. One of the special features is an interview with the director talking about the behind the scenes and how they shot some of the stuff. And he begins by just talking about how he came to decide to make this movie. And... I admittedly don't really know much about him, but I was like, you know what? I respect you as a filmmaker, even though I didn't like it. You go, man. Like, you do you. It's Adam Green is one of those guys I has had an interesting career um, who's done movies. Like I said, he's probably best known for the Hatchet films. But, like, Frozen, I thought, was really good. I legitimately like Frozen. Like, where a bunch of people trapped on the on a, uh, a ski lift overnight. Yeah. And that was – it's genuinely a scary, well-made film. And I know a lot of people really like the show Holliston. I have not actually seen it. So I cannot con- uh, I cannot comment. Uh, my friend uh, Richard Whitaker is always talking about how much he enjoyed it. So, but Adam Green's famous for being a super nice guy. Like he's one of those guys everybody likes a lot in the industry. So, you know, I guess why they keep coming up for the Hatchet films. All right, so let's move on to a film that I think we both really enjoyed, and in fact, I'm gonna just say that this is our pick of the week. Yes, uh, absolutely. That is the Blu-ray release finally of Takashi Miike's 100th movie. Holy shit, that guy's prolific. Blade of the Immortal. This is indeed an adaptation of the the manga and then uh, animated series uh, done to live action. Um, And this covers only the first two arcs of the four-part series, if you're curious. And it kind of compresses and moves some parts around a bit. So it's not an exact translation. So if you're going to be a canon queen, don't come into it like that. What you should come into this is like, wow, this is going to be one of the most well-shot, insanely gory, super fun, well-acted samurai films you're probably going to see. I I love it when Takeshi Miike makes a big-budget movie. Because I feel like there's enough of his batshit insane sensibilities that comes in, but he curbs it enough because of the budget that it just makes a legitimately entertaining film. It was the same with 13 Assassins. Yeah. You know, like one and of this his is, best movies. In a way, sort of a companion piece to it. it. It's 13 Assassins plus fantasy elements. Exactly. I was like, 13 Assassins is the historical action film. This is the historical fantasy film. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Fuck, I love this movie. And it's interesting. I had no idea it was based on an anime. And the whole time I was going, this feels exactly like an anime movie. Like, it made me want to go watch the the Kenshin live-action films afterwards. Mm -hmm. Just every character is larger than life and interesting. Every action sequence is amazingly well-filmed. Oh, yeah. So well shot. Oh, my God, the action is... I I will say, though, one thing, uh, and this is all me, so there's this... The idea behind the movie is that he becomes immortal because he 
goes through all this. Uh, the guy in oh. question, Manji, played by like cinema Japanese cinema superstar Takuya Kimura, who's yeah. been in like a ridiculous amount of stuff. So he goes through a really horrible experience and wants to die, and instead this god or demon yeah. or old nun with trickster old lady <laughs> uh, puts blood worms inside him that make him unkillable. He's yeah. immortal. Like, even if he gets a body part cut off, the worms, like, yeah. grab at each other across a distance and reconnect the, the pieces. And there's a part towards the middle end where... Uh, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but it, he, he gets weakened. It does the thing that, let's face it, every movie with an unkillable main character does where they get weakened. Yeah, of course. And... I spent the last two-thirds of the film going, well, they're bloodworms, so clearly he needs to bathe in blood, and then it will be okay. And so every time there was an action sequence, I'm like, oh, oh, this is this is what's going to happen. He's going to cut him open, and blood's going to pour over him, and he's going to be okay now. Yeah. None of that is not at all what happened. No. Um, I mean, his reason for even the events of this film, because you're like, well, why would you be going out and killing even more people if you're like, I'm just exhausted. I never want to become immortal. I mean, after he watches a guy who's after him kill his, his, I don't know if brain damage is the right term, but, but, but like in a, in crazy. a like had gone crazy little sister because basically she watched him kill her, her his, uh, her cr- totally corrupt husband in front of her. Uh, and that was his reason for living was feeling guilt and protecting her. But it's like 50 years later and he meets a young girl whose own family has been killed by a group of people who've decided they're going to either kill off or forced to join into just one giant coalition, all the martial arts schools in China and, you know, force either you die or you do this. And most of them choose fight and they end up dying because everyone in their little group here is a complete nutter badass. Yeah, they're, they're various, anime ninja badass. Yeah, the, the various special insano specialties <laughs> of things that they can do. And, and uh, <laughs> so she goes and she hears about like uh, through the meddlesome old nun who appears to her, the, this immortal guy. So she convinces him because she looks just like, as played by the same actress, uh, Hana Sugasaki, his long dead little sister he's like okay I agree to help you and he goes through and it's basically a series of like them one at a time encountering these various assassins of different things him would have him being in a situation where if he had been human he definitely would have lost the fight but winning the fight because he is not in fact human anymore yeah I was I don't know why this put popped in my head while I was watching this but I was like he's like the Keith Richards of samurai <laughs> what he does is incredibly sloppy but man, he gets there and he gets the job done in a way that makes you go, that was really cool looking. I have to say though, so I had one real complaint about the movie and. Sorry, not Keith Richards, Jimmy Page. It's with the, the girl character. So in the beginning, they set it up that she wants to be a fighter. She wants to learn how to use the sword and she wants to be this badass and then proceeds to spend the entire rest of the movie with her being nothing but a damsel in distress. Pretty much. And so I I just, the whole time I was watching the movie, I kept going, you would not really change anything about the plot if you made her at least semi-competent with yeah, a sword. It's a running joke. And it would make it better. It's a running joke that her she sucks at her one move. Yeah. <laughs> which, that was funny, but like like towards the end, the, the final action sequence, which is... is the main bad guy and every other surviving ninja versus like 300 or 400 soldiers just trying to kill them all. Yeah. And one of the best action sequences I've seen, but the whole time she's just 
she's running around behind him and she yeah. gets captured by this guy or captured by this person. It would have been more interesting if she'd come into her own. That being said, they do create an interesting female character in here yes. who's one of the other assassins who has mixed feelings about being ordered to come after this guy and this girl. It's like, I don't know if I'm com- completely comfortable with this, but I am still, despite realizing, acknowledging my failure, completely loyal to the guy who made the orders, well, the main they, villain. And they, in fact, do some stuff with the main villain. We're like, you're not just your typical mustache twirler. You've actually got some depth and your backstory is like, there's a point where he's explaining what his story is to the hero. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We all have a sad story. <laughs> well, and like, they do a good job of every character is far more nuanced than you think at first. Like, even there's one of the villains is this uh, head-to-toe covered samurai warrior guy with these weird protrusions on his shoulders. It's like, and he saves the girl in the beginning. And you think, oh, like, maybe this is the guy who's kind of the the one who doesn't want to be a villain or he's honor-bound. Nope, he's actually a psychopathic stalker who carries people's heads on his shoulders and yeah, he only saved her because he wants to like fuck her and yeah, he wanted to wait for her to get old enough to where she was the right age for him to fuck her. And I was just like, Oh shit. And then every other character, they're like, this is who you think they are. And no, there's someone entirely different. Something else interesting about them that we discover in the midst of that. They're not just their series set of abilities. Like this easily my pick of the week. I really, really want Mike to make another one, like part two, where they finish out the plot. Even though it's uh, some of the big elements in the second two ones are ones that they sort of crushed into this, so it's kind of like, I don't know where they would go after this. I'm okay with that. You know, the, Let it, Mike be Mike. Make, make it weird. That's true. That's true. I mean, I would be totally into seeing, like, like uh, a sequel, it just wouldn't be able to really follow where the the um, the, the graphic novels and the anime went. So I'm going to call it because he's weird enough to do this. It's going to be like a crime movie that takes place today. Yeah, where he's still just, alive. Just, yeah, he's still alive. I would be for that. Uh, there is uh, a couple different things on here in featurettes, one of which is like 18 minutes of essentially just the camera behind the scenes watching them film the, the giant seemingly endless final fight of the film. It's like 20 minutes of just like these two guys and then eventually more just slaughtering the shit out of hundreds of soldiers. My favorite detail is they they do interviews interspersed throughout the feature. Yeah. And the guy who plays the immortal blade, who I I don't even remember what his name is, Manji, uh, he Uh, has his, his right eye is covered because it got cut out before he became immortal. And he's talking about when they were filming it, how, how hard it was to actually shoot this action sequence with people all around him. He's like, I just kept this one person in my view and I knew if I could see her. I was probably okay, and I wasn't going to run into anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's also interview, a longer interview with him. There's various cast interviews with the rest of them, and then poster gallery and trailers. I mean, this is it's a pretty solid set. I mean, I would have liked a more produced making of than just a sort of like fly on the wall, fly on the wall, 18 minutes where I'm like, okay, it's interesting to watch this, but I would I would love to have had stuff where you're talking with the stunt coordinators yeah. and stuff like that. But I just it is what it is, and what it is is one truly fantastic movie. That I think whether you're a fan of more traditional samurai stuff or you like horror movies a lot or you just or you like more traditional action films, I think all of these coalesce in this really very Takashi Mike thing. You know, and this like, is straight Mike at his if you're you've only seen Mike at his batshit insane, this is not that Mike, but there's flavors of that Mike here. It's so weird. I, I'm so conflicted about this because 
I want Takeshi Miike to make make what he wants to make. You know, I, I definitely do not like all of his movies, mm-hmm. but I respect them. Yeah. But this and Thirteen Assassins are so fucking good. Yeah. I just want him to make movies like this now. Like I'm like, yeah, I know you can do those, but just please make us like four more of these so I mean, we can one of the feel things good. That I ex- excites me about him is that you never know what you're gonna get. Nope. Like, every time it's a new Mike film, it's like you have no idea what you're gonna get. And I've seen things from him do multiple different genres that I love like crazy. Although I will say, like, there's always gonna be a soft spot in my heart for that batshit crazy one. The guy who did fucking Ichi the Killer, which is Dude. totally sociopathically insane film. It is, it's crazy. Or, uh, Visitor Q. Oh, you had to mention that. Only for the strongest willed of of yours. So Visitor Q, fun little historical anecdote. That's the first Mickey movie I saw. And that fucked me up so hard. Yeah. It was like five years after I saw that before I would watch anything else he did. And so like after college, I had this moment where I just watched all the Mickey because I finally watched something other than Visitor Q. I, I personally love Visitor Q, but it was like the sixth Mickey I've yeah. seen. So it's, I was like, it should not be your first. I think I watched Gozu first, which is also kind of like, yeah. it's kind of his lynchy film, like Lynch at his craziest, but mixed with Mickey's sensibilities. And so Visitor Q was the natural next step, which yeah. was sort of, which as much as Gozu is Mike doing uh, Lynch, Visitor Q is uh, Mike doing John Waters. You know, and like honestly, I feel like this and 13 Assassins, these are the kinds of movies that would be good to be introduced to him on. Watch these big movies and then start getting into his smaller, more artistic and weird films when you're, you're prepared. <laughs> Agreed. All right, so uh, another uh, Hong Kong movie that we have to talk about this week is Extraordinary Mission. Now, one of the things that makes this movie really interesting is that it's directed uh, and uh, by Alan Mack and Anthony Pun, who are best known for making the Infernal Affairs movies, which are uh, fucking amazing. They're also noteworthy for the fact that they're the only movie I've ever seen that softens the blow of a major character dying mm-hmm. by showing us the major character dying again in slow motion. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> what was the movie, the American remake, the Scorsese remake? The Departed. The Departed, thank you, <laughs> was a remake of the first movie. I still wish they would actually go ahead and do the sequel because Infernal Affairs 2 is really the Godfather 2 to the... To, to the first one where it's like, okay, now we go back and we show the origins of a different actor, a younger actor playing these characters and it really works. And I'm like, I would love to see them do that with the departed departed. But that being said, this is not that same type of movie. This is, uh, although I thought this was quite good. Um, it, it's follows an undercover police officer, Lin Kai played by Huang Zan, who uh, we don't even know is undercover for a while under this movie. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that yeah. because I, I missed kind of one of the dialogue lines. I was getting a drink of water. No, they did their and best to for, keep it where you're not even thinking about for it. For the first hour, I kept going like, okay, so is he undercover yeah. or is he a criminal? I, I don't he, know. He's been working his way up for a while undercover through this drug syndicate. And he's, you know, working with some cops like who are like, kind of like, I don't, I think this is going too far. I think you're, 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 
you're doing stuff that even a cop shouldn't be able to do in the pursuit of the law. But he's like, but if we don't do this, we'll never get there. We could take down this group, sure. But how do we get to the big guys who are the suppliers, who, of course, all in the Golden Triangle, which is not even in China and much more yeah. scary and freaky. But he's got to get in with that, you know, because at first he's in with this group of like mid-level guys. And then he's in with their, the people who supply to them who are really scary guys. And then he's into the people who are supply to them who are really scary, scary who are basically their own government. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. They, they, they rule their land. They have yeah. full control. And so you're following this guy and you're genuinely worried for him. Um, I really enjoyed this. So... I, I love the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. Although it took me a while to figure out its tone because it's, it's two different movies and I finally figured out kind of how to describe it. But part of it is this, it's the infernal affairs part of them. It's very gritty and very realistic and very uh, cold yeah. is the only way to describe it. And the other part is it's fast and the furious yeah. where characters jump and spin around in midair and shoot two guns and explode Dude, a tank. And there's, there's like, a motorcycle chase scene in here that is right up there with anything I've seen in a fast and the furious. Movie. So I, I hit a point where I realized this movie is if it's Michael Mann making a fast and the furious movie. Yeah, that's good. And once I realized that I was like, Oh, I get it now. Cause and it then has, I got into it because it's not as goofy as a fast and the furious film. No, but it goes for that level of extreme at points for some of the stunts and action. Yeah. But it has that Michael Mann sense of like, this is serious and the odds are really high. It's professionals being professionals because the good guys and the bad guys, all of them are, no, we're the best at what we do and we know how to do it. And it's gorgeously shot. Oh yes. I mean, this is just, it's just a good movie. And it's one of those films that at points is just fun. And other points is really just intense drama. Although I, I will say though, and, and this is going back to these, the filmmakers who soften the blow of a major death by showing it again, slow-mo. Yeah. Nobody is safe. And there is a eh, 90% chance that if you like that character, they are going to die. Cause almost everybody dies in this movie. Yeah. People die pretty horribly on the reg in this and, one. And it's, they don't necessarily have to deserve it. Just people die. <laughs> There's only a four and a half minute making of extra feature here. Not a lot, but you know, it's, you kind of expect that sort of thing, uh, from a lot of these, the films that aren't considered absolute classics that get re-released here from China or Japan or, or Korea there. This was slid out on a minor company here and I, we should just be grateful to have it. Yeah. Well, so it, it, just to call it out. So I rarely will go out and pursue the movies we watch here just afterwards. Cause they're always fun. We watch a lot of them, and I've seen them once, and they're good. This one, and then Blade of the Immortal, uh-huh. I'm buying. Oh, you're buying both of them? Because okay. I'd like to watch them again. I really enjoyed the movies. Fair enough. All right, so next up, we have a, another Asian film, a Chinese-Canadian drama film called Old Stone, directed by Johnny Ma, uh, that played at TIFF in 2016. It follows this guy, Lao Shi, played by Chen Gang, who's a cab driver, um, who gets in a, a lot of a lot of moral and ethical hot water when uh, he hits a motorcyclist and he, I mean, this is the beginning of the movie. He like hits a motorcyclist, gets out of the cab. He's like, no, I want to help this guy. I've got to. And people are like, well, you should just wait. And he's like, they're not coming. No one's coming. The guy's going to die. And so he's like, fuck it. He puts him in his cab, takes him to the hospital. And that puts him in a situation where suddenly he's responsible for the guy. Like he's like, he's just a cab driver. 
His wife is like, are you fucking crazy? Why did you help this guy? Now we are responsible. Yeah. Now you should have just left. No one would have ever known. It, we would have been done with it. And, you know, and now we're paying for all these guys' bills. Add insult to injury to find out the guy's a piece of shit in real life. And he finds himself in a situation where if this guy lives, it's going to ruin his life. So yeah. what do you do? It's like, <laughs> and I, I'm curious. So how did you feel about this movie? Very mixed. Okay, yeah, because like, I, I feel like this is a very important movie if you live in Korean culture and are aware of their Chinese laws. Culture. Chinese culture. Yeah. I thought it was Korea the whole time. You know, it feels like Korean movie oh. because of the type of like moral complexity going yeah, on. Yeah, like, like it feels like one. But okay, well then, Chinese culture. So like, it felt like this is a very important movie with very important things to say about the culture that they live in. And me not living in that culture and not understanding the complexity, I was bored out of my mind. I wasn't bored, but I didn't know, I had no idea what to expect from this movie at all. I was expecting something maybe a little more hard boiled. Uh, and it's I, not same really, here. it is a moral, it's a, it's a moral quandary indie, indie film that is relentlessly like nihilistic. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, I felt like it's not saying what's the point of being a good guy in today's world. It's saying that the chips are stacked against you well, if and, you're a good guy in this world. Uh, you know, that like you're, you're in the minority and that sucks. Here's the thing. Like it's, I call these kinds of movies book of Job movies. Uh, yeah. Cause it's just about a guy who's just, you're right. The whole movie is just him being shat upon. And for me, if that's all there is, it just doesn't work for me. I need there to be a genre element, something else to keep me interested beyond just watching someone suffer. Yeah. And this was just very real world. So it just did not work for me. It's it's like it's slow moving. It's very well acted. I'll say yeah, that. The guy agreed. Is, especially the guy playing the lead is tremendous in this part. And uh, Tiff loved it. It got Best Canadian uh, First Feature Film and five Canadian Screen Award nominations in 2017 for like Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Editing. It won Best First Feature. That does not surprise um, me. This feels like the kind of movie that would play very well to festival. Yeah. And in Canada specifically. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it is a festival film totally, but it, it's a harder one to just watch on your couch. Yeah. It's, yeah. you want to pull away from it because it makes you angry and upset watching it that this guy who is a super decent human being, everything he does, it's like the whole universe is against him. Yeah. You know, I just, I, whenever I watch these kinds of movies, I keep going, just like, just leave, man. Like. Go go to a different country. Start a new life as a bartender exactly. or just something. Just get out of there. Just, you're, 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 your family are dicks. Yes. So fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So our last movie is the latest DC animated universe film, Batman Gotham by Gaslight, which is notable for being the first time they have officially taken on a Elseworlds. Now, one would argue that Flashpoint in its own way was an Elseworlds. I suppose it technically is. Well, it's just canon Elseworlds. Wasn't so is... Um uh, the last one that was not well received at all, um, the la the Alan Moore one that I can't think of. Oh, uh, Year One? No, uh, with Batgirl. Year who, one. Um, where, where Batgirl has sex with Batman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know if that's technically Elseworlds. Okay, I just always thought it was. I mean, there's like, they've said... The Killing well, Joke. Yeah, they've always said that... No, Killing Joke is canon, I thought. Is it? I thought so. I d okay. I'm pretty I sure. Because, right. I mean, otherwise, Batgirl never would have been an Oracle. 
Right? Never mind then. Yeah. Where we'll go with that. Okay. I take it back. But they've, they've always said, look, anything that's not in that comics line is Elseworlds. A television show, a movie. But technically, Elseworlds is anything with the Elseworlds brand sure. where it's like, what if our word world evolved differently and these characters were in that world? One of the best-selling ones, of course, was Red Sun, where what if Superman's, as a baby, his ship had crashed in Russia and he grew up a communist during the Cold War, which is really great and you should totally read it. Gotham by Gaslight was one of the other biggest ones ever, which is like, what if Batman took place in the Victorian age in essentially New York City? It's like Gotham usually yeah. is. Um, and in this particular, very different from the comic book. In fact, it's kind of a mashup of the comic book and the sequel together. They, they took elements of both and mushed them together. Yeah. And they totally changed who the killer was. Like, it's okay, a good. completely different person in the comic book. So I've read Gotham by Gaslight. Years ago, I've never read the sequel. Yeah, and so like at the end, I was I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, it worked. I was like, I swear that wasn't who it was. No. It's Batman versus Jack the Ripper for all extents and purposes. It's not Jack the Ripper, but it is Jack the Ripper. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's they grow. It's Victorian Batman, of course. He's going versus Jack the Ripper, and. I think on the whole, this thing works pretty well. It's certainly, I, I'd be curious because I didn't even remember the book. I haven't read it in so long. And I'll be curious to know what people who are huge fans of the book think when they watch this and go, this is super fucking different. You know, like, I, I'm with you though. I, I liked the hell out of it. I'm excited for them to do more Elseworlds like this. I was surprised by the violence until I checked and saw that this is rated R, kids. So. Uh, there is a fair amount of really graphic violence. And pretty sexy at times, too. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's lots of, like, I mean, because it's Elseworlds, like, oh, what would this person be like in their universe? There's a lot of that. Like, I one aspect I wish they had done more with was that uh, there's three sort of orphan criminal kids, like ones who might, like, be working. What's the name of the famous guy who runs the kids in, in Oliver? Oh, Oliver Twist. Oh, God. They, they use him as an expression, even like as an archetype, and I'm forgetting his name. I don't know. I was going to say, but you know, Oliver what I'm talking Twist. about. Yeah, I know. What but you're there's a guy about. like that who runs orphans as like criminals, and the three orphans in question who end up working for Batman are are basically uh, Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, and and Tim uh, Drake. Drake, you know, just as very, very, very young. And I'm like, oh, I would love to have seen that turned into more than it actually did here. I agreed. I wanted them to be a major part. And you know, a little disappointing as well. Poison Ivy is in this, but she's the first victim. You know, she's not Poison Ivy. She's just a stripper named Ivy. Uh, Selena Kyle, though, is the other really primary character here, who is a, uh, a, a what's the word? Um, the early feminists. Uh, oh, a suffragette. Suffragette. Yeah, exactly. She's like a very early suffragette and who is immediately disdainful of Bruce Wayne and his reputation as a playboy and stuff, but then realizes, oh, this guy's really not what he presents himself as at all. And I thought their relationship was the strongest part of this whole thing. Agreed. I mean, honestly, like, I felt about this that I hope that they continue to go in this direction. Because for a while, the DC animated movies were really good. And then they started doing the New 52 shared universe, which I'm not against that. And some of those are pretty good. But they definitely became more action-packed and less just quality film. Agreed. And I feel like this is the first time since they got into that where I'm like, oh, this was actually a really compelling story. I would like to watch this again. I'm excited to hear that they're continuing down this Elseworlds path of just going, here's this plot arc that we really like and we want to make this into a movie. I mean, I also kind of hope 
they stick with the let's not do an exact translation of this. Yeah, agreed. I mean, there's things you can't change up and you shouldn't, like the Killing Joke. They should not have tried to add the stuff they added because the Killing Joke works when it's just the stuff that's the Killing Joke and doesn't when it's stuff they added to it. Or you're like, why is this here? If you if you're going to add things, it needs to add things that enrich the characters and the directions they already go. Whereas, yeah. like the Killing Joke felt like let's just tack on this other plot that is completely antithetical to yeah, the rest of the whereas story. Whereas in here, this isn't really tacked on other plots. It's like an Elseworlds to an Elseworld. Yeah. You know? It really is. It's like, what if the story of Gotham by Gaslight happened in a completely different way? <laughs> well, and, and honestly, like, it, it is ultimately a mystery. I was legitimately yeah, I no surprised. Yeah, and I had no idea who the killer was. With the way the climax paid out, played out really worked for me. Somebody told me I have real problems with that. And I was like, I never got to, I, I just chose not to follow up with them about who the killer was. I was like, really just because of the canon of Batman that bothers you or because you thought it was improbable. Cause I found nothing improbable about no. it inside of the story. If you're somebody's like, I hate the idea that that character would be a serial killer. Well, it's an Elseworlds. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Get I, over it. I, I kind of want to see, because I've never read the comic, but I kind of want to see the Batman as a vampire now. Like, oh, yeah, I think Red, that was it. Red so Rain, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I read that one. That one was really good. I never read the second one, which I heard was also not yeah. bad either. But I, I really I did quite enjoy it. Now, of course, DC animated universes tend to come with a decent amount of extras, even though they've been reducing the amount of bonus features over the years, which is a shame. As we recently reviewed the re-release in Steelbox of the first of the DC animated universe movies, um... The New Frontier, New Frontier Woman? which is so yeah. packed with amazing bonus features. Uh, I was like, God damn, why aren't they all like this? Well, they're just not anymore. But what we do have here is a commentary with Bruce Tim, who's executive producer, and the screenwriter, Jim Krieg, and director Sam Liu, who's been doing a lot of these lately. Uh, there's a sneak peek at their next animated movie, which is Suicide Squad, which, Hell to Pay, which apparently the last Suicide Squad thing, which was technically a Batman film, but it was a Suicide Squad thing, was set in the universe of the video games. Yes. That, uh, that is true. It was the Arkham universe. And this is the first Suicide Squad that's set in the universe of the, you know, the rest of the regular movies. Correct me if I'm wrong, like, I just saw, the, like, the trailer, and not here, but when they originally released on YouTube, is it not basically a remake of the previous Suicide Squad cartoon? Is it? Like, that, I don't, that's I my don't memory. Know. I, I need but to they, go watch the trailer. The trailer I saw was, like, selling it like a Grindhouse movie. Okay. Where it was, like, doing it. Same thing they did with the recent, the most recent uh, trailer for Death Wish, where it's like, amazing action, <laughs> bloody kills. I was like, okay, that's, you kind of sold me. I, I, I want to okay. watch this movie. Well, and, and like, I, I'm excited for it. Uh, there is a 20 minute making of featurette that takes a real big look at how all these, how they got to this from the Elseworld books and what those, how that decision making process went, which was, I thought really interesting actually, because it really was a challenge what they chose to do by fusing these two things together and adding new elements and, and the, controversial choice, but I wanted, I think, worked of completely changing who the killer was. Very interesting. Uh, there's sneak peeks at some older ones that have already come out, and then, of course, there's old episodes of from the animated series, the episode Showdown, and the Brave and the Bold <laughs> episode, Trials of the Demon. They always try and throw in a couple old episodes uh, uh, from TV shows that in some way are related to yeah. whatever the thing is. I, it's like it has one character that's... Yeah. You know what? Any excuse to watch these old cartoons is fun. But, yeah. Oh, agreed. I mean, I just... You know, I, I keep... When is the next 
uh, technology coming out where it's like we can hold a hundred Blu-rays on one little Superman crystal we put in our thing. Because then I'm like, every single Batman thing ever made on one crystal, (laughs) give it to me now. Hope I'm still reviewing home releases and have that technology when that happens. You just have a Batman episode. Just talk about that one thing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that is it for this week's Digital Noise. That was a long one. We had a lot of stuff to cover. Yeah, we did. But it was fun. It's still one of the better sets of movies. I'm I'm kind of scared about what you're going to give me next. <laughs> Actually, I don't have anything for you yet. But I, <laughs> but I will. I will. Anyway, uh, join us soon for more of Digital Noise. Thanks, you guys. And let us know what you think in the comments. And use those Amazon links to buy stuff, please. It's very helpful. Please. We get a kickback. A kickback? A kickback. Whatever. Kickback works.